brothers, it's good to be with you again as we continue our study of Matthew. You may have noticed that uh, with this week, um, we just have three more lessons left. I commend you, those of you who have been faithful every week and um, have been uh, consistent and disciplined in this. This has been a good and rich study, and we want to finish strong both uh, this week and the next two weeks. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And as you turn there, I want to confess to you something. Um, maybe like a lot of you, I hate to lose. I really hate to lose. I struggle with that, frankly. Um, I coach, uh, or I'm an assistant coach with a high school soccer team. We had a game last night. It was against our crosstown rivals. And we were doing great until the last 15 minutes. And then the other team just took it to us. And it was a real struggle for me as a coach to sit there and watch this and not be able to really do anything. Um, and even as I got home, it was hard for me to go to bed because I just hated losing the game. I wanted to be victorious. You know, as we've studied the book of Matthew and have thought about Christ as king and the, the coming kingdom, um, I like that. I like that idea that, that I'm serving a king. I like that idea that there's this coming kingdom. But I would have to tell you that uh, I struggle with, the, with the, the humiliation of Christ or the suffering of Christ. Um, those things sometimes are difficult for me to get that um, uh, enthused about. Uh, and so in, in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul writes about how he desires to know Christ, Paul says, first of all, uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. And I think to myself, yes, Paul, just like that, I want to know Christ. And he goes on, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I say, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want in my life. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he goes on and says, and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. And I think to myself, I don't want that. I don't really want that part. I want to stop at the power of his resurrection, not the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So I would say to you that I can relate to the disciples here, in particular, especially Peter, in this uh, chapter, this passage that we're about to read. When they struggle, as Christ reveals what is the, the center or the crux of the kingdom, as they, as Jesus gives that to them, and they really struggle with it, I can relate to that. Maybe you can too. Let's read together beginning at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. Now when the disciples came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that, I, that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, 
and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time and opportunity to sit at your feet, uh, to hear your word, to be taught by your Holy Spirit. And we would ask, Heavenly Father, that you would do just that, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would transform us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we dive into this text, I think it's important for us to understand the context a little bit. Uh, as was spoken about last week, the, um, Jesus addressed the issue of the Pharisees and the fact that on the outside, um, you know, they might have looked good, but the inside was the real issue. Now, you see that it says Jesus um, withdrew or they came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and that would have been 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so they are clearly in Gentile country. They're they're not in a place where there were a lot of Jews. What is Jesus and his disciples doing up there? Well, it seems from the way that Matthew has constructed this gospel that he's wanting us to understand that there was a point in time at which Jesus really started to withdraw from the crowds and the teaching of the crowds and really focused in on teaching his disciples. And so here we have uh, Jesus focusing in on teaching his disciples, getting away from the place that they've been doing ministry so he can share with him with them some of the key things about his kingdom and about him being king. In this passage, there's so many things here. It's so rich and so full. But I really want us to, to see in this passage uh, three things in regards to the core of the crux or the center of the kingdom of God. The first thing I want us to see in verses 13 through 20 is the centrality of Christ. Jesus is now with his disciples and he he asks them uh, a question, um, who do people say that I am? And they, disciples, go ahead and say, hey, you're John the Baptist. Maybe Some people are saying you're John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead, or you're Elijah or another prophet, Jeremiah, that you're really trying to um, usher in the kingdom. You're like a great prophet, is what, uh, is what the disciples had heard people talk about. And Jesus turns and says, well, wait a second, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, um, representing the, the disciples, I mean, that's what he often did, but he was also one to speak up right away. He speaks up and he says something that is not just brilliant, 
um, it is it is supernatural, as you can see. It is it is from the Lord, and He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. You are the Messiah. You are what Peter is saying is we believe you are the long-awaited Savior of Israel that was spoken about in Isaiah, spoken about in the prophets. You are the one that has been promised for all time. You're not just a prophet preparing the way for that one. No, we believe you are that one. You are the Savior of Israel. And of course, um, the response of Jesus is, Peter, this, uh, this hasn't come from you. This isn't, this isn't just someone that come, this is something that comes because someone with smarter intellect draws these conclusions. No, this has been revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And he's the one that has given this to you, the Spirit of God. And then he goes on and says something very interesting. He says, you are Peter. He says, Simon, Simon a son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter, Petra, means rock. Jesus says, you are a rock. I'm calling you. That's your nickname. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, of course, this verse has been um, somewhat uh, controversial or, or um, uh, caused a lot of stir in uh, the last 2,000 years of Christianity. Because uh, Roman Catholicism would say that what Peter, or excuse me, what Jesus was saying was that upon Peter, Jesus is saying, upon Peter, I'm going to build my church. Where during the Reformation, the Protestants were saying, no, no, no. What, what Jesus was saying was upon Peter's confession that he is uh, Lord, he was going to build his church. Um, so the question is, what is it? Is it upon Peter or is it upon his confession? Well, as you do careful study of the text, like many have done uh, in the last thousand years, 500 years, what you uh, recognize is that you really can't separate that. But it might be important to, to understand that when, when we think about this rock and we think that about the question, what rock are we talking about? Um, that we're not, Jesus is not saying that Peter is the center and the foundation of the church, but he's not, he's also not, not saying that. Um, I think a way for us to understand this most clearly, and we could turn to many different places in scripture, but turn in your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and let's just read verses uh, 19 through 20 uh, through 22 in Ephesians chapter 2. Again, there's many places where we really begin to understand uh, what Jesus meant um, by building his church. But Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19, it says this, So then you, it's talking to the Ephesian Christians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. The house of God is another term for the kingdom of God or the church. Um, and he says, you are members of the house of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being held together, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in speaking about the church, Paul says that, that all of them are basically stones, rocks, that are part of the foundation 
that is making this building, this temple, this, this household of God. And that the cornerstone of this foundation is Jesus himself. So how does that illuminate for us these words back in Matthew chapter 16? I think it's best stated like this. Peter, as a representative of the disciples, makes this confession. And it's both Peter and the other disciples and the prophets who become the foundation, the rocks on which the church is built. But the cornerstone, the, the very the thing that sets the whole pattern, the, the centrality of the church is Christ himself, is the Messiah. So it's Jesus as Savior and Lord who is the center of the kingdom of God, the center of the church, and should be the center of our lives. Paul, oh, excuse me, Matthew makes it very clear here that it's Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel, who is the center of his church, but he is building as the center his church on the foundation of these disciples and the prophets that came before them. And these confessions, these truths that come from the, from the Holy Spirit spoken through uh, these men, this becomes the foundation upon which the church is built. So Christ as Savior and Lord should be the center of our churches. And we can't lose that. And I know many of you men feel very strongly and rightly about that as the Holy Spirit has convicted you. But I would say this too, men. Christ needs to be the center of our lives, our daily lives. So the centrality of Christ is not just something that we fight for, or long for, or strive for in our churches. But that's only going to happen if Christ is central in our own personal lives, our daily lives, that Christ would be central. And I suspect that just like Peter does in the verses that are about to follow, that sometimes we struggle with keeping Christ at the center and what that truly means for our daily lives, not just for our churches. So let's go on. The centrality of Christ here in verses 13 through 20. And next, the cross of Christ in verses 21 through 23. Notice in verse 21 that Jesus explains his death and resurrection to his disciples. He says, from this time on, he began to show his disciples um, that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of these officials and that, that he would rise again after three days. Uh, Peter doesn't like this, so Peter rebukes Jesus. We'll get to that in a second. That's just a disturbing thought, uh, any of us rebuking Jesus. And Jesus then strongly rebukes Peter. Let's take a look at that as we think about the cross of Christ. In verse 21, as it talks about uh, that Jesus is showing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, the disciples would have understood that this was an official execution. This wasn't just kind of something that happened on the side. No, this, went, this meant there was going to be real problems when it came to... Uh, um, the official government stance on Jesus, on Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-awaited uh, Savior of Israel. And this really bothered, probably bothered all the disciples. Um, Peter, again, as the representative, is the one that speaks up. 
and he goes to Jesus, and 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 the reason he's coming to Jesus is in Peter's mind he can't he can't get around this idea that the king of this kingdom that has been promised uh, throughout the Old Testament, that this king, if Jesus is the king, if he is the long-awaited Messiah, there is no way that he should be going to Jerusalem to be killed, and we should avoid that. That can't possibly be the plan of God. The cross cannot be the plan of God, Peter determines, and as a result of that, he goes to Jesus and he says, never, Lord. In fact, if you look at our translations, it says, far be it uh, from you, Lord. Notice he calls him Lord. And then goes on, this shall never happen to you. So Peter goes and rebukes Jesus and says, never, far be it from you, and calls him Lord. That's a problem. Other translations, you see the words never, you see the word no, you see the word not. And as many pastors have said, those things don't go together. You can't put never with Lord or no with Lord. So Peter should have recognized, even as the words came out of his mouth, that, that he was out of line. And we two brothers need to recognize that. We don't, if, if Jesus is Lord, we don't say, no, Lord. We don't say, never, Lord. We don't say, uh, not, Lord. Um, to say Lord is to mean yes, always. But here, here, Peter because he can't put his wrap his mind around what's going on and and he can't see a kingdom with a cross he can only see a kingdom with victory with power he can't see it with humbling with humiliation with suffering as a result of that he seeks to rebuke uh, Jesus and Jesus response in verse 23 is extremely harsh in fact it it might even seem to some of us as you know, where's the grace? Where, where was, where's the grace of Jesus and the, and the mercy of, of Jesus here? And yet, I think Jesus' harsh response, a harsh rebuke, I should say, to Peter, reveals the immense important of, importance of the cross. And it should be for us an, an alarm, a reminder of the immense importance of the cross of Christ. And this would explain what it says there in verse 20, when it says, Then he, then he, that's Jesus, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why would he do that? Because the cross hadn't happened yet. And Jesus knew that if my disciples proclaim me as Messiah, proclaim Christ without a cross, then they are going to be going in a direction, as we see right here, that is really the direction of Satan. And the rebuke that Jesus gives Peter is some of the same words that he used when he was rebuking Satan himself. And what he's saying to Peter is, the words that are coming out of your mouth are not godly. The words that are coming out of your mouth are from Satan himself. And you're a stumbling block to the kingdom. You're a stumbling block to, to truth. You're a stumbling block to me as the Savior. This cross is important. In fact, it is the most important thing. But many have struggled with it. And the cross, we, as we know, is very hard for humans to accept. Certainly right here for Peter and the disciples, it was hard for them to uh, um, accept. I know 
for many of us in different points in our lives, it was hard to accept. Why is it? Why is the cross so uh, hard for humans to accept, the cross of Christ? I think there's several reasons. I think, first of all, the, the cross requires that we confess our utter sinfulness. If there's a cross, and if it's central, if it is the, the, the very point of the ministry of Jesus, if it is the, the very center of human history, if that is true, then it requires us to understand and confess our utter sinfulness, that we are like what David said in Psalm 51, we are sinful at birth, sinful from the time our mothers conceived us. That we are that sinful, that we are that broken, that we are that dirty. And that's hard for us as humans to accept. Second thing that I think it requires, it makes it difficult to accept, that it requires we confess our utter helplessness. So not only are we sinful and broken, which many of us might say, well, yeah, I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a good guy. I've done some bad things. But then isn't it our temptation to go, yeah, but you know what, I've done some good things. So let me talk about, you know, and I've got some good in me, or humanity has some good in them. And we have a tendency to want to wanna put on the ledger, so to speak, uh, so to speak or the, the scales, something that would weigh against our sinfulness. But the cross requires that we confess our utter helplessness as well. Not only we are completely sinful, but we are completely helpless. And unless Jesus comes and dies on a cross for our sins, there is no way out of this. There's no other way to salvation. Uh, the cross isn't just one way to salvation. It's the only way to salvation. And if that's true, then it, then it, then it makes clear our utter helplessness. And, and we, we've got nothing to offer. I think the other reason, another reason, that the cross is so difficult and hard for humans to accept is that it requires we respond to Jesus as our absolute sovereign in our lives. That he really does, he really is Lord. He has to be Lord of our lives if there is a cross. You see, because if we're completely sinful and we are utterly helpless and Christ dies for us in our place, then that means that our salvation, He is Savior, has to be Lord. He is absolute sovereign in our lives. And that's hard for people to accept. They want maybe the salvation. They want the freedom from sin, the freedom from shame, the, the justification, maybe even the sanctification. But to have Jesus as Lord, to say, I'm going to obey Him no matter what, I'm never going to say, or I'm not going to say, no, Lord, never, Lord. That becomes difficult. And so that makes the cross difficult. And I think the last thing I would say is that uh, the reason the cross is so hard for humans to accept is it looks like crazy foolishness to the world. Isn't that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? There in the second half of the chapter, probably beginning at verse 18. He says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It looks just crazy stupid. Um, it looks like something made up in a fairy tale. And to, and to confess utter sinfulness, to confess utter helplessness, to, 
to say that this person that died on the cross is now our Lord and, and demands absolute obedience, that just looks foolish. It looks crazy. I remember years ago doing youth ministry, student ministry, fresh out of college, and I thought to myself, you know, it, it is just an amazing thing to, to be carried along by the Holy Spirit and to, and to experience the, the forgiveness that Christ offers uh, through His cross, through His death and resurrection. And, uh, and it, it's empowering. It brings you life. It brings you identity. And boy, if these high school students could just understand this, if they could take Christ into their lives and live for Christ, you know what? They, they might be pretty cool in their school. They could really be cool for Christ. They could... They could you know, be the quarterback of the football team who's just following Jesus and he's confessing Jesus and so he's leading people to Christ or the point guard of the basketball team or they could be you know, the star in the play. Um, they could be the lead in the band. They could um, you know, be the, the guy who's the valedictorian. Um, and man, if they could just do that and, and then they give testimony for Christ, I mean, they could... They could make Christ cool in their schools and they themselves would actually enjoy um, a confidence, a popularity just because they were walking the identity of Christ and people would be attracted to them. Well, brothers, after about five or six years, I began to realize as I watched some students actually do that, that they faced actually a lot of criticism um, they started to be left out of parties. Um, some people made fun of them behind their backs. And uh, the result was that to really walk with Christ, for Christ, in your high school meant that you probably weren't going to be as cool as if you didn't. Well, of course, that's happened to us in the world as well, hasn't it? In fact, I think it's coming more and more. I think that maybe in America we've enjoyed for at least our lifetime some sense of respect because we're religious men, we're Christian men. Well, I think those days are quickly coming to an end because more and more the cross is looking like foolishness to the rest of the world and it's hard for them to accept. But the reality is, the truth is, the foundation is the center here in the center of Matthew's gospel. Here it is. There is no kingdom of God without the cross of Christ. But brothers, though this tells us that we are utterly sinful, utterly helpless, this is where grace is found. This is the place in which your shame, your sin, your brokenness, your helplessness is met with the powerful grace of God poured into your lives and you and I become acceptable. Maybe not to the world, maybe never to the world. But does that matter? Because we wonderfully are not judged on the accomplishments of our lives, but we are judged on the accomplishments of Christ Himself, what Christ has accomplished for us in the cross. And we must never give that up. May our lives always be identified with the cross of Christ. And then finally, we see in this passage the call of Christ in verses 24 through 28. 
as Jesus has explained his death and his resurrection, I guess the disciples were missing the resurrection part. They didn't have any folder for that as well. As Jesus is explaining that, and they have this moment of rebuking Peter, which pretty sure was a public rebuke, that the others, not public in the sense of the crowds, but the other disciples were there. So they're probably glad that they didn't speak up, but they were probably all thinking the same thing. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. There can be no kingdom of God. There is no moving forward without a cross. And then he says, and you, my disciples, you have a cross. Jesus explains to them very clearly what it means to be his disciple, what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Uh, we um, label ourselves, those of us who have given our lives to Christ, who have put our faith in Christ, um, we would say we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. We follow Jesus. I remember years and years ago, um, and it was said several Sunday nights at Second Presbyterian Church as one of our pastors uh, preached there. And he would say on different occasions, and I've never forgotten it, he would say this, or ask this, you're followers of Jesus? Is that what you are? You say you're followers of Jesus. Okay, where is Jesus going that you're following? You're following him, where is he going? And then he would say, Jesus is going to the cross. You're followers of Jesus, where is he going? Jesus is going to the cross. Will you follow Jesus to the cross? As Jesus spoke to his disciples in this deep moment, he said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Sometimes I think in our current cultural context here in America and the lives, brothers, that we've enjoyed, which in many ways um, uh, we've enjoyed some some material and worldly pleasures. Um, And while we've had some suffering, life has not uh, been like it's been for For instance, our brothers and sisters in China right now, um, we have not endured things like that because of our following of Jesus. So when we see the the phrase, deny yourself, um, I think a lot of times we think in the terms of just some kind of slight asceticism, you know, slight sacrifices, small ways in which um, we deny our, our, our daily desires. But in the context here, as the disciples listen to this, they understood clearly what Jesus was saying. And when Jesus says, deny yourselves, he wasn't just talking about some slight asceticism or sacrifices. No, Jesus was saying, this means death to everything, including your physical life. They would have known that. The disciples would have understood that part. This deny yourself means death to everything, including our our physical lives. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my follower, you need to die to everything, including your physical safety, including your financial security, including everything that this world has to offer. You need to let that go. You need to die to those things in order that you might take up your cross and come after me or follow me. What good is it 
if you gain all these things, if you have your health, if you have a lot of money in the bank, if you secured for yourself a reputation in this city, um, if your kids are married and you have grandkids, what good is that if you don't have Jesus and His cross? But if you have Jesus and His cross, you've gained everything. You've gained absolutely everything. Die to everything, Jesus says. You know, one of my favorite things to study uh, has been um, World War II history and particularly uh, the D-Day invasion, the, the, the events leading up to and uh, during and uh, right after the invasion on June 6, 1944, um, have been very fascinating to me. And I think they're fascinating because it's a point in history in which um, uh, you see some great sacrifice. Um, and hearing the stories and, and reading the stories of these men and women who made these sacrifices um, is both challenging and convicting. Um, one area in particular, one group in particular that fascinates me is the paratroopers that went in in the very early hours before dawn. Um, some flew in in gliders, others were dropped out of planes uh, behind uh, the enemy lines, dropped behind the beachfronts. And some of you know this, uh, just a few days before the invasion, uh, General Eisenhower was told uh, that there could be up to 75% casualties among the paratroopers. We know after uh, it, took, it took place, the event took place, um, that there were more than 50% casualties among the paratroopers. But you know what? Those men jumped out of those planes anyway. In fact, one of my favorite stories of D-Day was of a young, I believe he was a corporal, who was leading a, a stick, a group of men who were going to be jumping out of a plane. And he knew they were terrified. He was scared too, but he was called to lead this group of men. And they needed to, at a certain point, jump out of the plane. But the anti-aircraft fire was so great um, that it created even more terror among these young men as they got ready to jump. Um, and as they uh, opened the door of the plane uh, to set up the jump, uh, this young corporal was at the edge of the plane, and he was actually hit um, by some kind of shrapnel or something, and he was wounded. Uh, and he was told by the, the, um, the pilot or the, the guy that was assisting their jumps, who was part of the plane, he was told uh, by that guy, listen, you need to stay, you're wounded, stay, but everybody else needs to jump. And this young corporal looked back at his men. He saw the terror in their eyes and he thought to himself, or I guess he thought to himself, if I don't jump, they won't jump. And wounded, he jumped out of the plane. And those other men followed him. You know, I know some of you who are listening to this, uh, who are amen men, I know that you served uh, your country um, in different uh, wars, in different um, conflicts and I just want to say thank you thank you uh, for serving thank you for being willing to lay down your lives for uh, our freedom uh, for for my freedom uh, and I know you thought that way I know when you 
went into service. I know when you went into those conflict areas or into uh, those locations, I know you were denying yourself. You were giving up your right to life. You were giving up your right to your physical health. You're giving up uh, your right to a lot of things. And I'm grateful. We are grateful for how you served. But I would say to all of us brothers, all of us, every single one of us, if you put your faith in Christ, we've been called, all of us have been called to serve our King in this kingdom in the exact same way. With our whole lives. Willing to lay down our lives. Lay down our lives in our home. Lay down our lives in our marriages. Lay down our lives in our businesses. Lay down our lives in our relationships. Lay down our lives in this country. And I would suspect that the years ahead for all of us, that these years that we're about to face, I suspect that they're going to be filled with greater sacrifices than we've had to uh, offer up in the past. And I suspect that following Jesus in the years ahead is going to require greater denial. I suspect it's going to require a greater understanding of what it means to take up our cross. And it's not going to feel victorious. And uh, it's going to be humbling. And in some places, brothers, it's, it's going to require a humiliation of us. And that's going to, uh, to be difficult. I imagine it's going to require suffering. I think it's going to require financial suffering, physical suffering, emotional suffering. And many of us are going to be tempted at different times to say, like Peter, Never, Lord! May God give us the grace to say something different. <laughs> May the Lord give all of us who have been called to serve this Savior of Israel, this Savior of ourselves, this Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace to say along with Paul, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible, <coughs> I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. May the Lord, through His cross, give us the grace to say that, brothers. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its beauty, for its truth. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who is center of his church, the one who is king of his kingdom, the one who must be center in our lives. Thank you for the cross, which is the very center of humanity, of human history, which is um, the very point of our identity and our existence. O oh, Father, may we glory in the cross. 
And thank you for this call on our lives. Lord, give us the grace and the strength to live up to that calling that we might with joy deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And Father, may we do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks, brothers. You have a good week.